Well, hey, if you're like me, uh, then one of the frustrating aspects of my spiritual life is, is my prayer life. Uh, I don't feel like I'm ever praying enough. Uh, I feel like my mind wanders too often in prayer. I feel like sometimes my prayers get incredibly uh, repetitive, and the list could go uh, all, on and on and on. I feel like my appetite for prayer should be higher. I wonder sometimes while I am praying and I, in bed and fall asleep in the middle of a prayer. And so uh, I just feel like at this point, I should be further along spiritually in every area, including prayer. But over the past uh, several years, uh, in reading in prayer and trying to study and grow in prayer, there were two uh, simple principles that I came across that were encouraging and helpful to me, and so I want to share this with you as well this morning. The first one is I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he's you know, got 20 years of experience on me, and I just said, gosh, I just feel like I should be further along in prayer. And he shared with me a quote uh, from a book uh, that he written or read many years ago on prayer, and the author uh, made this statement. He said, there is nothing the flesh resists more than prayer. And he went on to explain, here's why. He said, because our flesh is inherently sinful, and therefore it is prideful. And the natural drift of prideful hearts is that towards self-sufficiency. But prayer is an open declaration that I am not self-sufficient, that I desperately need God's help. He said, so there's always going to be a battle in the flesh towards prayer because the flesh says I can and prayer says God I cannot. And so that was helpful to me to understand that tension we feel is normal. And the second thing I came across regarding prayer uh, that was helpful to me that might be helpful to you was, was this little simple principle and, and here it is. If you want to pray more consistently, then just turn your worries into prayers. That's it. Now, you have to discipline yourself towards prayer. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And so when it comes to prayer, there is a discipline that we have to engage in. But when it comes to worry, listen, I don't have to work hard at that at all, right? That's the natural drift of my heart. And the author was saying this. He said, if you just take all the things that you worry about and just turn those into prayer, number one, it's an act of dependency on the Lord. Because when you start worrying about something, here's why you worry about it. You think you're responsible for the outcome. But prayer is an open declaration saying, God, I'm putting this at your feet because ultimately, God, you're responsible for the outcomes of my life. I'm just responsible for obedience during the journey. And so he just said, hey, the easiest thing you can do practically is just write down all the things you're worried about and just start praying through that list of worries if you want to pray more consistently. And so that was incredibly helpful for me. But the things that we worry about are things in the future. Regrets are things in our past that we cannot change, but worry doesn't live in the rearview mirror. Listen, worry is straight out the windshield. Here's what's coming up, and I don't know how I'm going to navigate this, and I don't know how this is going to turn out, or those things. And so uh, turning our worries into prayers, uh, many of our prayers are going to be future-oriented. And here's a question to wrestle with. If God is sovereign over the future, why even pray about it? If God is God and God's going to do what God does and God's sovereign over all the future, then why even engage in prayer with future-oriented prayers? I think that's a good question to wrestle with. And so let me give you two reasons. Number one, Scripture tells us to. Now, I could just stop there and that would be enough, right? Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. So Scripture talks about future oriented prayers, but also Jesus models it. So turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to continue our 
Red Letter Prayer series. And we're going to take a second look at this chapter 17 that's known as Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Last week we looked at the first part of uh, Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And Jesus prays that uh, he would be glorified with the sole motive that he could deflect that glory back onto the Father. And that he also uh, prayed, we were reminded, that we are fully equipped to carry out the work of the Great Commission because Jesus is interceding for us and the Word of God is sanctifying us on the inside while we engage in the Great Commission on the outside. So this week we're going to finish out Jesus' high priestly prayer by noticing that he's praying, like we do, for things that happen in the future. Now, everybody look up here. I don't know about you, but that is fascinating to me, looking at some of your faces, I'm not convinced you're as fascinating as I am, all right? But think about this. Jesus is God in the flesh, knows the future, knows how everything is going to play out. But yet we still find him praying about future events despite being God in the flesh. And so, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Let's look at those verses this morning. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one just as you, our Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, or they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you love me. So take note of this reading through, observationally. There's already two so that's here in the text. And that's important, all right? Those are cause and effect statements, all right? Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made them known to your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, it's clear uh, contextually from these verses that Jesus is uh, praying in this high priestly prayer for future believers. And so that includes everybody in this room. How encouraging is that, that at one point in Jesus' life, he was praying for the future believers, the church, the gathered church, and that includes us. And so if you ever wonder uh, what Jesus would pray for on your half, listen, wonder no more. Several years ago, there was a, a country song that came out, and I just got to make a confession. I do like country music, and I also need to make a distinction. That is not the same as bluegrass. Amen? And there was a, there was a song that came out, and the, pardon the theology, but the song title was, If I Could Have a Beer with Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, that's blasphemous, and some of you are thinking, that's my favorite hymn. Amen? And the idea of this was, man, if I could just sit across from Jesus for a few minutes, here are the kinds of things I would ask him. And if you have that same opportunity, say, man, I, I just wish that I could sit across from Jesus and ask him, would you pray on my behalf? I wonder what he might pray for. Well, guess, let's guess what? Wonder no more. Because here is a prayer that Jesus is praying on our behalf for a future-oriented prayer for his church. And so... What does it look like, a future bathed in prayer? What do we pray for? I want to send our thoughts around two things this morning. Number one, we should be praying for people who have yet to believe. 
I don't want to spend a bit of time here because this is not the primary point of this passage. The primary point of this passage is uh, verses 20 through 23, and it's a teaching on unity or prayer about unity and, and the blessings of knowing Christ in verses 24 through 26. But I don't want to completely gloss over this detail here because at the beginning of verse 20, look what he says. I do not ask for these only. Now, what he's referring to is all the things he's been asking the Father for in verses 1 through 19. And the things he's praying for in verses 1 through 19 is for the gathered church that already exists uh, when he's there on earth. And so he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm praying for these people who are already Christians, who are already part of the church. But I'm also praying for those forward thinking who one day will come to know me as Lord and Savior. And what he's praying for is that they would glorify the Father. And so what do we make sense of that? What we make sense is this. It is totally appropriate to be praying for Christ to be glorified in the lives of non-Christians. Because here's the good news of the gospel. Some of those people one day will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, sometimes when we think about praying for non-Christians, and every single week we, we pray for non-Christians. Every single week. We want things to be on our heart that are on the heart of God. That's why we pause and pray for our one every single week. But if we're not careful, then, then our prayers for those who don't know Christ... Uh, just sound like this over and over. Jesus saved them. Jesus saved them. Jesus saved them, right? Just over and over and over. And those are good things to pray. Evangelistic prayer is the most important and least practiced aspect of the Great Commission. So we should be praying not just for sick people to get well, but for lost people to be saved if we're going to be Great Commission Christians. Listen to the first part of verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate uh, about the doctrine of election. Here's how I've explained to people. Like, if you believe strongly in election, you're Presbyterian. If you don't believe in election at all, you're Church of God. If the whole conversation makes you nervous, you're Baptist. That's how that works out, all right? But here's, let's not get bogged down in the things that might not be clear at the sake that we disregard the verses that are clear. And what is clear in Scripture is this, is that God's desire is that all people would be reconciled to His Son, Jesus Christ. So you and I should be praying for that. You say, where's that in the Bible? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to these uh, verses. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 echoes this sentiment. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I had a Bible college professor, he's now with the Lord, and, and uh, he used to have this phrase he would drill just over and over and over, and here was the phrase that Dr. Fink would say. He would say, all means all. That's all, all means. And so when he's saying, hey, the Lord's desire is that all people would be saved, that if you want to align your heart with God's desire for humanity, you and I should be praying evangelistic prayers. And so, yes, we should pray for people to come to know Christ, and his death was sufficient for all men, even though it's only efficient for those who believe. But in the context of these verses, when you go back and read John chapter 17, Jesus is not just praying 
for the future salvation of non-believers. He's actually praying, not only would they get, not get, or get saved, but they would live in such a way that would glorify the Father. He's saying, God, my heart for these people is not just one day that they'll be in heaven, but before they get there, they would live in such a way that would bring glory to the name of the Father. That's why he's already praying for their unity as Christians before they even know Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here and you like practical Bible teaching, would you just raise your hand? If your hand's not raised, I'm just assuming you're drunk at church and it's early, all right? What this means is this. It is completely appropriate to pray for the non-Christians in your circle of influence to live in such a way that glorifies Jesus even before they've met him. That's what Jesus is doing. Verse 20 says this is a future tense prayer. And then beginning in verse 21, he's praying not, not just they would get saved, which is a good and appropriate prayer to pray. He's saying, I don't want them to just be saved. I want them to live for the Father's glory. And so what that means practically is this. That Jesus is modeling this in this passage, number one. But number two, the purpose of salvation is not just to get us into heaven. Did you know that? Listen, if the purpose of salvation was just to get people into heaven, then as soon as you got saved, God would transport you into his purpose or in his presence because his purpose has been accomplished in your life. The purpose of salvation is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ completely so that we might fully glorify the Father. And so that's what Jesus is praying for. Not just that these people would go to heaven He's saying, God, I, I want them to get saved, but, but it's not just so they go to heaven. It's because in the meantime, I want them to be conduits for your glory. The whole reason Jesus wants to be glorified is why he wants us to be saved so that glory may go to the Father. So what does that look like practically? Here's what that looks like. Praying for bosses who don't know Jesus to love Jesus and learn how to be a servant leader like Jesus. Now, maybe you, some of you have prayed some different prayers for your boss over the year, right? Maybe you prayed like the psalmist did, and the psalmist said, oh, God, break their teeth. Maybe you prayed that, right? But don't just pray for your boss to get saved so that you're working by him. Pray that he would come to know the Father and lead in such a way that glorifies the Father. That means praying for non-Christian kids and grandkids, yes, to come to know Jesus, but also to meet and marry someone who loves Jesus and to train their future kids to do the same for the Father's glory. That means praying for Children who are not old enough to understand salvation, not just to get saved, but they would reorient their lives to live for the Father's glory. They would find careers that are vehicles to display God's glory and not just achieve money and status. It means praying one day that your cat would no longer be demon-possessed. Not just so they can get to heaven, but so they would go from enemies to friends. Amen? That's what God wants. Write that down. So here's what I want you to do. I don't miss this, all right? And we're going to move on. The first thing Jesus prays for on behalf of future believers is that they would glorify the Father. Now, then he goes into the specifics of what does that look like. And so how do we live in such a way that glorifies the Father? Well, according to verses 21 through 23, it's uh, when we refuse to act a fool in church, to quote a theologian. Verses 21 through 23, listen to what he says. That they may all be one. So verse 20, he's praying for future believers. Not just that they would get saved, but they would live for the Father's glory. Verse 20. And then he begins to describe 
what it looks like to live for the Father's glory. He said that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me, the glory you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the second future thing that Jesus prayed for us, number one, or looked at that in verse 20, number two is this, that we would grow in wisdom and humility. Now, if you've ever taken a class or sat through any teaching on how to study the Bible, uh, here's some things you might have learned. Context is king. When you're studying scripture, the context of that passage drives the interpretation. So if you've ever taken any class on how to study the Bible, you learn that context is king. Something else you might have learned uh, is that observation or carefully, slowly reading and rereading a passage and noting details of that passage, careful observation leads to correct interpretation. And one of the things that we would learn uh, in, in observing a text is that anytime something is repeated in Scripture, it is for the sake of emphasis. So when the angels cry out and say, hey, God is holy, 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 they're not stuttering, all right? They're magnifying or emphasizing the thrice holy character of God. And so what's it got to do this passage? Well, when we go back and read through verses 21 through 23, three times in these verses, there is an appeal to unity. Verse 21, that they all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. And so what we learn is that the clear moral will of God that Jesus desires for future believers is that they would be unified in Jesus Christ. And we see that repetition. So, so here's the question. If these verses are about unity, and that's what Jesus is praying for on our behalf, then why would I say that the need is to grow in wisdom and humility? Well, here's why. If you're listening, say amen. The issues that lead to disunity both in your interpersonal relationships and in the corporate life of the local church are rooted in a lack of humility and often a lack of wisdom. Think about this. Disunity is not caused by ignorance. Like you, you can be a non-Christian. You can ask a non-Christian and say, hey, you think it's a good thing when churches split and they fight and it's all over the news? You think that's a good thing? No one's going, I, that's great, right? Like you don't even have to be a part of a church and there's a chance that you've collected stories about disunity. There's a church down the road from my house, a new a campus has opened up another church. It's going really well, praise God. But prior to that, I used to drive by this church all the time, and I thought, man, that's a pretty, pretty nice building. It's a little, you know, it's kept up a little bit. It's at a great look at high traffic count. It's located but right in the kind of the middle of three little towns or communities. And so I, I can't figure out why in the world this church keeps changing over hands and changing names, and it clearly by the grass is vacant for a while, then some other church tries to set up shop and, and those kinds of things. And so one day I asked someone who lived in the area for a long time, they said, oh, you don't, you don't know the story of that church? And I said, no, tell me. They said, oh, that, that's the church where literally one Sunday two deacons got into a fist fight in the front yard on a Sunday morning. And I said, wow. I said, you know when revival takes place, when the Holy Spirit shows up, we start casting out deacons, Amen. 
Like, is that what happened? And <laughs> it's a joke. If you're a deacon, I don't want to meet afterwards. Don't email me. It's just a little joke, all right? Pastoral humor. In other words, that church became a monument, not, not just for the people that went there, but for the community around it, of the damage of disunity. And even people who didn't know Christ knew the story of that church. And so what are the root issues? It's not, it's not ignorance. Like, oh, I, I didn't know that unity was something to be working towards or praying towards. It's not, it's not the issue. The issue that lead to the habits of disunity or the affections of our hearts uh, is, is simply a lack sometimes of wisdom or a lack of humility. And so it does us no good to, to learn here that Jesus is praying for his future church if we don't address what hinders us from actually living out the prayers that Jesus is praying on our behalf. Back at our all-campus gathering at the beginning of June, I, I taught out of these verses for about 15 uh, minutes there. And uh, we talked about the theological reality of our unity in Christ and the practical reality of how that plays out despite gathering in different campuses. And, and so let me just remind you quickly of those theological truths in verses 20 through 23, our unity uh, both with each other and with believers all over the world, which is the scope of Jesus' prayer here, uh, comes from a common salvation. We all came to Christ the same way. comes from a common purpose, which is to glorify God, and a common mission, which is to make disciples or live for the Great Commission. And so here's the question. If that literally is the prayer of Jesus on our behalf, and it is undergirded with some really strong theological concepts about our unity in our salvation, our purpose, and our mission, then why is it so hard to experience unity in a church? Here's why. The natural drift of our deceitful hearts is to want to be right even at the expense of being reconciled. Let me repeat that. The natural drift of our sinful hearts is to want to be right even at the expense of being reconciled. Now, how do I know that? Because a little science experiment here. You, everybody in this room has been in a conflict with someone else or what we call our house, intense moments of fellowship. And the light has gone off where you're wrong, and, but instead of admitting you're wrong so that you might be reconciled, the, the desire of your sinful, pride-riddled heart is to be right. And so instead of apologizing, you just double down. And if you're like, well, I've never done that, then listen, no one likes you, all right? Because we've all been guilty of that, the rest of us. And so, so one, that, that's a, a spiritual problem, but, but here's the other reason it's so hard in a church. God has equipped us to do different things in the body of Christ. And those spiritual gift catalogs, it talks about some people are this part of the body, some people are this part, all of them are needed, all of them are interdependent. We look at those passages. But here's what else I've noticed as well. That when it comes to how God has gifted us with different gifts and different passions and different experiences and even different personalities, then what happens if, if we're not careful is that we can get spiritual tunnel vision. Let, let me describe to you what I've seen over the years. Uh, the people who love to worship God through song don't understand the people who don't. The people who are obsessed with prophecy can't understand. I think my ear 
became detached from my head. I'm not totally sure. The people who are obsessed with prophecy cannot understand why other Christians are not taking careful notes of world, world news and world's events. They, they, just, they can't fathom that. The people who want to serve the poor cannot fathom why others aren't so compassionate when Jesus clearly had a heart for the marginalized, right? And so we developed this spiritual tunnel vision, but what happens is this. Uh, tunnel vision can be a nice word for stubbornness, and so, so that is the natural drift of our hearts. is towards prideful, towards being right, towards not, not humility, those things, and then we have these passions and gifts and interests we have in the body of Christ, and so it is a recipe for disunity, and so we've got to cultivate a heart of humility and a heart of wisdom. Now, here's a phrase that we say over and over uh, again in our church. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. And listen, it's going to take grace-empowered effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit across the diversity. And so let me be very specific with desire to be helpful in some areas that we might need some wisdom in. See if some of these sound familiar in the church. We need wisdom to discern the difference between truth and tradition. Can I tell you a little secret? Sometimes the reason churches split aren't over biblical reasons. Did you know that? That for years, the number one cause of church split during the worship wars, the years, uh, the number one cause of church splits was whether or not people use drums in the church. The second highest reason that churches split, these are true stories, the real stats based on Barnett's research and some Moreno's research, the second highest reason was whether or not the church had pews or chairs. Apparently, somebody said along the way, they said, listen, we should use pews like they did in the New Testament. Amen? I had a guy tell me one time I was consulting a church, and, and he said this. He said, you know what? He said, let me tell you when the, the disunion in our church started. He said, the pastor moved the offering from the middle of the service to the end of the service. And he said, I think we should put it back in the middle of the service like the Apostle Paul intended. And I laughed out loud. And then I looked at him. He was not laughing, right? <laughs> he was serious. So wisdom to discern the difference between truth and tradition Calls this unity. We need wisdom to discern the difference between first, second, and third tier theological issues. I've told you this before. We can disagree on the timing of the Lord's return. You can, you can see it like I see it. You can be wrong. I'm, I'm fine with either of those, all right? Not every theological issue is a first tier issue to you know, break fellowship over. We need wisdom for that. We need wisdom to discern the difference between a preference and a conviction. So how do you know the difference? This is really simple. This shouldn't be hard, but for some reason it is. Convictions are rooted in the Bible. Preference are the specific ways you would like to apply that general biblical truth, but the Bible doesn't have a specific way you should apply that truth. It might be a good place for some teaching on modesty. Would that be, everybody like that? That's, that's never controversial, right? All these issues and so preferences and convictions. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to discern the difference between biblical values versus cultural values. We need wisdom to discern whether or not it's our faith or our politics that's driving our position on issues. So, so here's the deal. Listen, fill in the blank. Any of these areas by themselves with a lack of wisdom applied to this can lead to incredible disunity. Look at the last two 
years in our country, the number of people who left their churches because the disunity in culture spilled over into the church. And so we desperately need wisdom to maintain the unity of the spirit that Scripture talks about and Jesus is praying for here in John chapter 17. But here's the second thing we need. We need to cultivate humility. And the best way to cultivate humility, here's the, here's the tricky thing about humility. If you think you are humble, it's a good sign you're not. I was listening to a podcast this week, and the guy, uh, I was having this conversation with this other guy who said, quite honestly, I had known about him. I thought he was, you know, kind of sketchy. I had suspicions about him theologically. We're just having lunch, and I'm trying to pepper him some theological questions. And, and he said, well, let me just ask you. Uh, he said, what do you love about your church so much? He said, well, I love this, and pastor about missions, and high view of scripture. And the thing I love most about our church is the church is so incredibly humble. And the other guy just smiled, and he said, I find it interesting of how aware you are of your humility. So humility is a tricky thing. But what I found more practically helpful in my own life is to look at the warning signs of pride. And here's why that's helpful. Because pride is so blinding. We're blinded by pride. We'd be more interested in being right than we are in being reconciled. And guess what? That is a, a recipe for disunity, both in your life personally and in the church corporately. And so humility is to have the default position of Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus serves as the ultimate model of what humility looks like. Listen to this verse. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Like we could just stop right there, right? Can we just all agree we'd be living in a different country right now if everyone embraced that truth and actually lived out of it? Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's the model right there. So let me just list some warning signs of pride that often serve as a catalyst for conflict, both in your life, interpersonally, and in the church, corporately. And this list is, is so good, and I can't, can't take credit for it. This is a, a list directly from the late Puritan author and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. So you ever, you ever find yourself going, man, I just wish that we'd get back to the good old days? Sometimes people say, I just wish the church was, was like the church of, of yesteryear. <laughs> Here's what I'm asking. Which one? Look at the Bible. Most of the churches in the Bible are filled with people who are jacked up. Read these words written by Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan theologian, about the battle for pride in a Puritan culture that prided itself on humility and plain dress and plain speech and hard work and all those things, and yet the greatest theologian of all times maybe writes these words on pride, and they ring true today. Here's the list. Warning signs of pride in trying to cultivate a heart of humility that may lead to unity. Number one, fault-finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil we see in ourselves, it also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. We sift them, letting only their faults fall into our perception of them. Number two, a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their hearts speak of others' sins with contempt, irritation, frustration, or judgment. Three, superficiality. 
When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of us than the reality of our own hearts. Number four, defensiveness. Those who stand in the strength of Christ's righteousness alone find a confident hiding place from the attacks of men and Satan-like. What did Edwards mean by that? It means I don't have to respond because my identity is not in your prideful perception of me. My identity is settled in Jesus Christ. That I believe at the core of my being what he said about me was true regardless of what you think about me. Number five, presumption before God. He's talking about a lack of reverence. Humility approaches God with humble assurance in Christ Jesus. If either humble or the assurance are missing in that equation, our hearts very well might be infected with pride. Let me, let me give you a modern phrase that got popular in culture that is an example of what he's speaking to. Remember there for a while when people were in those t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. It's a lack of reverence. Number six, desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, respect, and worship in all of its forms. Number seven, neglecting others. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor, giving more weight to their words, their wants, and their needs. Listen to this. There's a thrill that goes through me when people with power acknowledge me. And pride has taken root in my hearts. Now, if you're like me, I read that list this week. I couldn't say amen. I, I said ouch. But here's the good news of the gospel. There's hope for prideful people like me. The confession puts me on the path to receive the grace I need to empower me to overcome the pride that not only blinds me, but also serves as a disunity in my life and in the life of the church. Now, let me just let you know a little secret. That's hard. Did you know that? Seeking out wisdom, the Bible talks about Proverbs about searching after wisdom, there's effort involved in that. Cultivating a heart of humility, confessing pride, that, that's all hard stuff. So why in the world would we do that when it's so hard to do? What's the motivation to push through that? Well, the answer is where the answer always is, it's in the text. Look quickly down at verse 21 and also verse 23. Here's the motivation. To cultivate a heart of humility, to confess pride, to seek hard after wisdom. Verse 21, so that, cause and effect. Here's why. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, so that, cause and effect, the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even, even as you loved me. Here's what he's saying. The thing that gives credibility when we declare the gospel is when we demonstrate a heart of humility before the world who's watching. And hear me this morning, church. There may not be a better time in all of our lives in this age of division and defamation and all those things than to display a supernatural unity to the world that looks at us and says, man, how in the world are those people Getting along, how in the world are they worshiping together? How in the world are they serving together? How in the world are they loving each other across all that diversity? And the only answer we have is Jesus Christ alone doing in us what does not come natural to us. 
Here's what I'm telling you. We are at a moment in culture where we cannot afford for our corporate witness to be hypocrites in the area of disunity. Listen, if people wanted uh, disunity, you don't have to go to church for that. Amen? But people should look at our lives and our churches and go, it doesn't even make sense. These people are Democrats and some are Republicans and some of them are, uh, what's the island? Ignorant? Independent. Some of those people speak English on those campuses. Some of them speak Spanish. Black, white, brown. Some people live in this town. Some people live in that. They, they, they even, like, it doesn't even make sense. And here's what he's praying for our unity is our witness, it gives credibility to our gospel proclamation. And this is a point in time in culture. Listen, you can get discouraged with this. Listen, here's my choice. What a time to be a missionary for Jesus. Amen? What a time in a world filled with disunity and hate and division to stand up and say, hey, there are people that I love deeply who disagree with me completely on politics and all kinds of other issues. But I love them. And Christ has produced a unity in me that is supernatural. And here's the last thought I want you to leave you with. Listen, when we display that type of unity, that love for each other, that esteeming others better than ourselves, listen, I want you to think about this. This is powerful. Think about this. When you do that, when I do that, then you are literally an answer to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. How powerful is that? Woo! Right? That by cultivating a heart of humility that leads to a supernatural unity across all of our diversity, that we would literally be an answer to Jesus' prayer for his future church in John chapter 17. And why? Because the whole world is watching. Let me close with a powerful reminder that it's so simple it's easy to forget. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And church, the only reason we can display that type of love is because he first loved us. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. talking about a heart of humility and the battle we have against pride I want to ask you this has there ever been a time and a place or a season in your life where in humility you cried out to Jesus Christ to save you from your sins your pride said you could save yourself your pride said you could be good enough to get to heaven but you came to the place to recognize that your righteousness, your self-righteousness, is as filthy rags before God, is what the Bible says. And so if you've never humbled yourself to the point of acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, would you pray right now and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you pray right now and receive Him as your Lord and Savior?
For those of you who know Christ, been walking with Christ a long time, would you pray a hard prayer right now? Would you pray and say, God, as painful as it may be, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God, root out and expose every subtle form of pride in my life. Would you pray that right now as hard and as scary as that is to pray? Would you pray that God would produce such a heart of humility in you that if there's any broken relationships in your life, that you would have a greater desire to be reconciled than you do to be right. Reconciliation models the gospel where God reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ. And so would you pray that right now? God, help me to be more concerned with reconciliation than being right. Father, we're grateful that not only do you call us to do hard things that are countercultural and counter to our own hearts. But God, you've given us Jesus, number one, to serve as a model. But number two, to rescue us from ourselves. God, the gospel is not just about getting people to heaven in the future. It's about reorienting the affections of our heart in the meantime. And God, we are needy people. We desperately need Jesus to work in our hearts to save us not only from hell, to save us from ourselves. And so God, we say thank you because he's been made available to all of us. You've not left us hopeless and helpless. You've given us your son. And so we throw ourselves in the mercy of his feet. He is an all-sufficient Savior, rescuing us from hell and our pride on the way there. We are grateful. It's in his name we pray because we can. Amen.